welcome. My name is Chris, if you don't know me. Uh, glad you're here worshiping with us in person this morning, and for those uh, watching online, especially at Wood County Jail this morning, glad that you're able to participate with us. Uh, well, the book of Romans, um, up to this point, chapters 1 through 4, have largely been about the idea of justification by faith, right? What we just sang, the roaring lion, Jesus, has declared that the grave has no claim on us. Uh, you may remember at the beginning of this series, we started by watching um, a video from the Bible Project. So a guy named Tim Mackey put this together and it uh, gives us a broad overview of the book of Romans. And uh, transition happens in Romans starting at chapter 5. We're moving out of the glorious reality that we're justified by faith alone uh, through grace alone and not according to anything that we've done, but all uh, because of what God has done on our behalf uh, and into some practical outworkings of that and what we're called to do and how we're called to live as Christians. And so uh, we have another video this morning from the Bible Project for you to watch. Uh, just know there's a ton of content here. Um, it's uh, chapters 5 through 16. Um, it's about nine minutes long, but uh, do your best to track with it. Um, it'll be available to you, I believe, in the Church Center app. Uh, a link, I think, went out in the email, and then it's on our website as well, um, or you can just find it on YouTube if you decide you want to watch it later. But uh, for now, here you go. Paul's letter to the Romans. Check out the first video where we explored who Paul was, and why he wrote this letter, and where we trace the core ideas of chapters 1 through 4. That all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That this rescue is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create a faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. Now, in the remaining three movements of the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to develop these ideas even more. So, remember, Paul's exploration of justification by faith, that when people trust Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, they're given a new status, they're right with God, they're placed in a new family, the covenant people of Abraham, and they're given a new future, the hope of a transformed life. Now Paul wants to show how this reality should reshape every part of our existence because being in this family means being a part of a new humanity that God is creating through Jesus and the Spirit. So Paul goes back to the first human character of the biblical story, Adam. His name means humanity. And Adam, like all humanity after him, has chosen sin and selfishness. And so everyone faces God's judgment because we've become slaves to sin's influence resulting in death. But then Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, who he says is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, shown through his act of sacrificial love. And now Jesus offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity that is being transformed by this gift, which leads him to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like humanity and entering into the new Jesus-like humanity. And their baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined to his life. What's true of him is now true of them. It's when people accept their identity as Jesus-like humans that they are liberated to become the wholehearted humans who can truly love God and their neighbor. 
Now, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, Paul asks in chapter 7, what then was the point of God giving Israel the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah? Now, side note, when Paul uses this word law, he sometimes means the storyline and message of the first five books of the Bible, but other times he's more specifically referring to the hundreds of commands given through Moses and that are found in the Torah. The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all those commands? Paul says that the commands of the Torah were good. They showed God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline of the Torah, Israel broke all those commands. The more laws Israel received, the more they replayed the sin of Adam and rebelled. So even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. But, Paul says, that paradox is the point. God's goal was to make it crystal clear that it's evil that's hijacked the human heart and that the Torah, good as it is, could not do a thing about it. But, Paul says in chapter 8, the solution has arrived in Jesus and the Spirit. And here's how. The commands of the Torah acted like a magnifying glass. It focused the problem of the human condition into one place, the people of Israel. But now Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, has paid for and dealt with all of that sin through his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus has released his spirit into his new family to transform their hearts so that they can truly fulfill the call of all the Torah's commands to love God and neighbor. And there's more. God's renewal of human beings is the first step of his larger mission to rescue and renew all of creation, making it a place where his love gets the final word. Now you can see how chapters 1 through 8 are one long flow of thought here, but it raises some other questions. If all of this was God's purpose, what is the current status then of Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? How does this story fulfill God's promises to them? Well, Paul begins in chapter 9 with his own anguish over fellow Israelites who don't think Jesus is their Messiah. And it leads him to reflect on Israel in the past from the Old Testament story. And he reminds us that simply being an ethnic Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, never made one automatically a faithful member of the covenant family. Paul shows us how God has always selected a subset from Abraham's family to carry on the line of promise. And his point is that now that line of promise is carried on by those who follow Jesus. He reminds us that for a long time, people inside and outside Abraham's family have rejected God's will. He reminds us of the story of Israel and the golden calf and of Pharaoh's rebellion. He shows us how God was able to orchestrate events so that people's rejection of him actually accomplished his redemptive purposes. And so in chapter 10, Paul turns his focus to Israel in the present. The reason many Israelites reject Jesus is because they're basing their covenant relationship with God on their performance of the commands in the Torah. And so sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create a new covenant family on the basis of faith. And so Paul asks in chapter 11, what is Israel's future? Has God written off his people? No, he says. There are tons of Jewish people, including himself, who do recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but there are also a lot who don't. But God has been able to use their rejection for his own purposes. It's caused the gospel to spread even quicker and farther into the Gentile world, making the family of Abraham even larger and more multi-ethnic. 
Paul describes God's covenant family as a big olive tree. And the rejectors of Jesus have been broken off, so to speak, and these Gentiles are like wild branches that have been grafted into the family tree. However, Paul says, one day Jesus will be acknowledged by his own people. He doesn't offer any details about how. Paul simply trusts God's character and promise that he won't give up on his covenant people which transitions into the final section of the book, chapters 12 through 16. But remember the big picture. Because of their faith in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are now together Abraham's family, that new humanity that's being transformed by God's Spirit. And so, this is how God's fulfilling his ancient promises. Therefore, the only reasonable response is for these Jews and non-Jewish Christians to be unified as the church. In chapters 12 to 13, he shows that this unity will come from a commitment to love and forgive each other. Love will look like everybody using their diverse gifts and talents to serve one another in the church. And it will also mean humility and forgiveness. When these different ethnic groups and cultures come together in Jesus, conflict is inevitable, and it can only be overcome through the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is how they will show the greatest of Christian virtues, love, which fulfills the Torah's greatest commands to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In chapters 14 and 15, he focuses specifically on the issues that are creating ethnic divisions in the Roman church. These are disputes about the Jewish food laws and the Sabbath. And Paul says these practices don't define who's in or out of Jesus' family. And if people differ over these culturally important but non-essential issues, they need to learn how to respect each other's differences. And it's in this way that love will heal and unify Jesus' family. Paul closes the letter by first commending Phoebe, who's a key leader in the church of Kenkre. She had the honor of carrying and perhaps even reading this letter aloud to the Roman churches for the first time. Paul then concludes by greeting all the people that he hasn't seen for a long time, and that's the end. Whoa. You can see better now how all the pieces of this letter fit together and show what a profound masterpiece it truly is. That's what the letter to the Romans is all about. That's a lot, right? Uh, we have nine minutes on uh, 11 chapters in perhaps the most theologically rich book of the whole Bible, so uh, we'll have the ushers come forward and pass out the written exam at this point. Um, good luck. Just kidding. Uh, I've watched that video probably now six or eight times, and every time you get a little bit more from it. Uh, if you want to go check it out again later, um, feel free to do so. Um, <clears throat> but Here's what I want you to take uh, for this morning. Uh, Tim Mackey, who voiced that video, uh, reminded us that the first part of Romans tells us that all of humanity uh, is trapped by sin uh, and has been rescued by Jesus, by his shed blood, in order to be the people of God. That's how we arrived at the title for um, our sermon series here, Experiencing the Gospel Together. We've been called out of darkness and into light together. We're meant to do this a uh, thing called Christian Christianity and living out the gospel together. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, we see uh, what Tim opened up with, this uh, transition where we talk about uh, Adam and his sin and all humanity being sinful and Jesus being the new 
uh, and better Adam. But before we get there, uh, there's a section that he didn't talk about, and that's what we're going to be in uh, this morning, where we talk about a whole bunch of outworkings uh, of justification in our lives. So you've uh, probably noticed a theme, uh, and it's been pointed out to you regularly, right? We are justified by faith, uh, not by anything else. That's what Romans has been about so far. We're credited the righteousness of Jesus, not based on anything that we've done, but based wholly on the grace of God and him uh, calling us to himself. And now, as we come to Romans 5, uh, we see this transition happening in the book. Uh, And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in Five uh, verses 1 through 11 uh, as we talk about some outworkings of the reality of our salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So um, before we begin, would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for who you are, uh, for the love that you have for us and for the gift that your word is to us. Lord, Psalm 19 reminds us that your law is perfect and it refreshes our souls. Uh, Your statutes are trustworthy, your precepts are right, your commands are radiant, and the fear of you is pure, enduring forever. Your decrees are firm, and all of them are righteous. Lord, your word refreshes our soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives joy to our heart and light to our eyes. Father, as we open up now together, would you be among us, encouraging us, teaching us, uh, and drawing us nearer to you? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, open up, if you would open up with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it's on page 914 in the Worship Center Bible, or if you have your phone, uh, you can open that up to whatever translation you want. Uh, We have the YouVersion app, some notes and stuff in there. I'm preaching from the NIV, and just a note, uh, Glenn mentioned we don't have Sunday school today. If you have kids in here and they make noise, I'm not bothered by that at all. I have three squirrely kids of my own, so, you know, no worries. Uh, as we work through, we're going to see six blessings uh, of justif- uh, six blessings that come to the believer as a result of our justification uh, by Christ. So the first blessing we have in these verses is this: we have peace with God. Look with me at verses one uh, and the second, first half of verse ten. Uh, Paul writes this. He says, "Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that is, since Christ's righteousness has been credited to us, we have peace with God." through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then jumping down to verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We were enemies with God, Paul says, but but now because Christ died and his righteousness is credited to us, we have peace with God. When we are justified by the grace of God, we are no longer God's enemies, but now instead we have peace with him. Before we come to Christ, we are enemies with God. Have you ever thought about that? We like to think that there are more categories than just the two, right? Of course, there are those who are enemies of God, right? Murderers and predators, and we, you know, we have this category of people. You just kind of know this is this person is an enemy of God, and then and then we have this other category of believers and people who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, right? They've confessed Him, they've been washed by Him, they're they're following after Him, they're full heirs in the promise, and 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 they're they're covenant people, they're adopted as sons and daughters. Right? But then, because this is a hard concept for us to wrestle with, we create this third category. And it's people that I, I like, a category that I like to call good people. Right? It's our neighbor who is kind to us. Right? They help us mow our lawn or help with snow removal. We, they might have a key to our house. They watch for burglars when we're out of town. It's our family 
who, who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't want much to do with God, but, but they're kind and they're good and, and they don't believe what the Bible says exactly, but, you know, who are we to judge? Maybe it's, it's you or me, right? We, we go the extra mile at work. We, we help the lady down the street. We, we treat our coworkers well. We go to church every week. Heck, we even give to the church. Well, well Romans says that apart from being justified by Jesus Christ, we are not good people. We are enemies with God. Not people who coexist with him. Not friendly acquaintances of God. Not, not you do you, God, and I'll do me, and we'll just kind of live in harmony together. Romans 1 says that God's wrath is upon those who are apart from him. Enemies. Right? And it's not, it's not that he's hateful or angry towards his enemies. It's quite the opposite. Right? He's there beckoning that people would turn to him and be forgiven. To, to flee from sin and recognize that when we surrender to Jesus and confess that in his death he washed away our sins and, and, and he was raised for our justification, right? When, when we confess him as Lord, all of that stuff goes away, right? The, the status as enemies is now gone and we have peace with God. Instead of, instead of being, your sin being counted against you, it's washed away, separated from you as far as the east is from the West. Instead of enemy of God, you are now called son or daughter of the King. And this peace that we have isn't, isn't some feeling inside, although at times you will experience peace that God gives you. Right? But this peace is an objective reality that comes from being restored and reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. Peace with God means that the state of war that has existed between God and man is now over. Whether we feel happy or peaceful has nothing to do with it, right? This is a peace that's much more solid than our fleeting feelings. When we have justification, we have objective and secure peace with God in heaven. The second blessing of our justification is that we stand in grace. Look with me at the first half of verse 2. And it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So not only has the, the hostility between God and man been removed, but now we're invited into a relationship with God in the here and now. That's what it means to stand in grace. We're invited into this relationship or this friendship with God right now, here, while we walk out our days on earth. And it's a relationship in which forgiveness is the norm, right? We've been reconciled and redeemed, and, and things are good between us and God. We've moved from standing outside of the castle as we wage war, right, holding our sword and our, and our shield and, and launching an attack on that castle, and, and instead, we're granted a warm bed inside as the king, God himself, defends us from all harm. You may be familiar with the story of uh, the World War I Christmas truce. Uh, if not, uh, let me remind you. So uh, uh, December of 1914, the World War I is going on, and uh, soldiers on both sides are cold and, you know, sick of fighting, and uh, things are not great, but there's this war, this long war going on. And uh, it comes to uh, Christmas Eve night after a long day of fighting, and things have kind of calmed down because it's dark and and nothing's going on. And uh, all of a sudden, American soldiers tell the story of they hear 
uh, the Germans start to make noises in the trenches on the other side of the, the fields. And, and they're like, what's going on? What is that? And uh, some of them start to recognize the tunes. And before long, uh, the singing changes and uh, it, it shifts into English. And they hear them singing Christmas carols. And as they're singing these Christmas carols, the Americans are like, what's going on? And uh, that kind of continues during the night. And then in the morning, um, the German soldiers shout, start shouting over, like, come over and join us. We want to share some stuff with you. And the Americans are like, oh, I, you know, I'm not so sure about this. We were shooting at each other yesterday. I don't know if this is a great idea. Uh, but, but so they, they consider, and, you know, there's kind of nothing going on. And, and so they say, well, will you come out and we'll come out and we'll meet halfway. And so cautiously they do that, and they meet halfway, and before long they're exchanging cigarettes and shaking hands and uh, talking with one another, these, these people that they were enemies with the day before. And, and one account even says that a soccer game uh, with a makeshift field broke out uh, with hundreds of players. Right? They, they'd gone from being enemies, right? And, and, then, and then there was peace on Christmas Eve through the night, and then uh, for one magical day, Right? In the middle of this terrible war, there was more than just a ceasefire. Right? There was something like friendship. Friends, we have peace with God. But more than that, we've moved into a friendly relationship with him. And not one that exists just for that one day, but one that continues on in eternity. You see the progression here? You've gone from no longer enemies to friends and family with God. Your access to the God of the universe is now unrestricted because you stand in the grace that's brought on by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's such hope in this. There's so much hope here, uh, as we're going to see in just a minute, because no matter what's going on in your life here on earth, whatever trials you face or whatever difficulties you experience, you, because of your faith in Jesus, stand in the grace of God. That is a really good place to be. Third, we boast in hope. Look with me at the second half of verse 2 through verse 4. Paul writes this. And now we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. The first two blessings really feed this third one, right? Because the more our peace with God and our standing in grace are realized in us, the more profound the true reality of our situation in life becomes. So what is Paul saying here? Well, he's reminding us that because we are at peace with God and because we stand in his grace, that there is hope in God and in God's glory, in spite of whatever our circumstances are. Hope here that Paul talks about is not like wishful thinking. It's not the soft hope that we have in fleeting things. Paul's talking about a hope that is a firm confidence in a reality that will certainly come to pass. Right? When we talk about hope, we think about you know, weak things, right? I, I hope that the Cubs will turn their season around and make the playoffs and go on to win the World Series, right? It's, it's probably wishful thinking. We, we hope when we're young, right, that the person that I have a crush on will have a crush on me too, right? We, we have that hope. We, we hope um, that we get a promotion, right, and higher pay, or we hope that our package with that thing we want is going to arrive a day or two early. We hope for these things. Right? It's wishful thinking. Maybe it'll happen. 
maybe it won't. Well, the word used for hope here is the word that's used as we wait upon God to fulfill his promises. It's a patient and sure expectation that God is going to come through on the things that he's promised he'll do. Here, then, we see that we have a confident expectation in God ushering in his glory. So how does that play out? Well, no matter what your circumstance is, we boast in hope, in the confident expectation that we are secure in our past and our present and our future. Right? We're, we're forgiven. We have peace with God. And more than that, we're invited into a relationship where, where we stand in grace and where God walks with us in this life. And we're brought near to him. And as we look forward to eternity, we can boast in what God has secured for us, eternal life in his presence. So what does suffering have to do with all of that then? Well, Paul's not saying here that we enjoy our suffering, right? Nobody, nobody does that. We don't enjoy suffering. Suffering by its very nature is unpleasant. Nor is he saying that we should seek out suffering to somehow give our hope an opportunity to be developed, right? There's a real difference between God allowing suffering and us seeking out suffering or trying to create suffering in our own lives. Instead, what Paul is saying here is that our hope in the glory of God is developed in the midst of suffering. We understand this intuitively, uh, even if we don't like it. Now, if you've ever started an exercise program, you know what it's like to develop a muscle. Hope in God's glory is like a muscle that is developed through suffering. Think about this. You, you can't get better at your squat unless you squat, right? You can do a bunch of body weight reps and get stronger that way, or you can throw the weight on your shoulder and you can do a few less reps, but there's a struggle there, right? You, you, have, to, you have to go through that struggle in order to develop the muscle. You can't run farther or faster unless you go through the struggle of taxing your legs and your cardiovascular system, right? You have to go through that difficulty. Well, similarly, you can't grow in hope if your life is perfectly easy, right? You, we, we need to experience hardship in order to see God's glory for what it is. The brightest light, right, is the one that shines in the deepest darkness, and so it is here. As Christians, we don't have to waste our suffering. Instead, we can use it as God intends. When we experience suffering in this life, we have a chance to remember that we stand in grace and remember that we have peace with God. And as we do that more and more, we develop perseverance, Right? As, we, as we squat 200 pounds week after week after week, it gets easier. As we run that eight-minute mile pace, right, it gets easier and easier and easier. We develop perseverance. As we continue, character is developed. Right? And our hope muscles are integrated more fully into what we do. It's easier and easier for us to endure life's trials as we're more and more enamored with the glory of God. And so comparatively, the trials of this life seem more trivial. Tim Keller uh, talks about it like this. And just a note before this first one, um, there are uh, three or four quotes from Tim Keller in this message. I promise you, I did not plagiarize this. Uh, he just had some great things to say uh, as I read his comments. 
So Tim Keller, uh, he, says, he says this. He says, the reason this benefit comes third is because the more we experience our peace and access with the Father, the more desirous we are to see him face to face, and the more certain and thrilled we become about the prospect of glory and heaven. By itself, heaven can be an abstract and unappetizing idea. But if you come to taste access with God and realize how intoxicating it is just to have a couple of drops of his presence on your tongue, you will desire to drink from the fountainhead. That desire, focus, and joyous certainty of the future is called the hope of glory. There's such freedom granted to us in this blessing, isn't there? People are looking for escape everywhere. I'm more and more convinced that the reason that people do almost anything is because they want to escape from the hopelessness and emptiness that fills them. Our lives are impossibly difficult. We can, we can be honest about that. Our lives are impossibly difficult. And, and the reality is that so many are just a piece or two of bad news away from the whole thing falling apart. Right? And so we search for ways to cope. I was talking with a friend recently about a hobby we share, and he said this. He said, I needed this hobby to get me through a pretty rough time in life. What he meant is he needed the thrill of buying something new and having it show up in the mail to get him through the difficulty he was dealing with. We all feel like that sometimes, don't we? Maybe for you it's accumulating stuff related to a hobby, Maybe it's chasing a thrill in relationships. Maybe it's the high of exercise, the excitement of doing something illegal. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol. Right? People devote themselves to an ideology and to changing the world because if we can just make a difference, then we won't see, feel so empty inside, right? And we'll feel like uh, our lives matter and they'll be better. Everyone's looking for an escape. Right, from the pain and disappointment that comes with living in this sin-filled world. But the sad truth is that no matter what your means of escape is, it's not coming. The escape is not coming. There will always be one more thing to acquire. There will always be one more mile to run. There will always be diminishing returns on people and drugs and alcohol, whatever it is. It won't fill you or satisfy you, or make you feel better in the midst of your difficulty. It won't. But Jesus will. Jesus will. Those things, all of that stuff that we try to fill our lives with, can't. It won't satisfy you. It won't make you feel better. But Jesus will. You cannot create an escape. But the good news is, you don't have to. God has given you one. We don't have to fabricate this fake boasting in stuff that doesn't really satisfy us, right? We can boast in the hope, in the confident assurance that God is going to do something about all of this mess. And that because we've trusted in Jesus, we get to partake with him in that doing something. We don't have to pretend to be satisfied by lesser things, by idols, right? Instead, we can take life's trials for what they are. Suffering that produces perseverance, that produces character, and culminates in a constant gaze on what God is ushering in. Keller again says this. He says, suffering removes from us rival sources of confidence and hope. Other places we might look for our sense that deep down we are okay and that our future will be okay. 
Suffering drives us to the one place where we can find real hope, real confidence, and certainty. God. If you've been justified by Christ, you no longer need to seek hope in created things that will always leave you wanting more. You can find it fully in the creator of the universe. Instead, we are not people without hope. Fourth, God's love is poured out in us. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us, God's love is poured out into our hearts. Well, what does the Spirit remind us of, and, and how do we know that God loves us? Well, because Christ, who is God and who was sent by God, died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, while we were still standing outside that castle, right, holding our swords and our spears, making war. During that time, Jesus died that we could be made new and forgiven and reconciled to God. God has affection for us, surely, right? God has affection for his people. But his love is not merely affection. God's love is tied to action, right? And he lived out his love in perhaps the most powerful way possible. When the circumstances of our life seem sketchy, when we come to suffering, we tend to doubt God's love for us, don't we? At our best, we should take that suffering, as we just talked about, as God intended it, right? As an opportunity to develop perseverance and character and grow those hope muscles. But if we're honest, that's not how it often plays out in us, right? Instead, real suffering hits. Not suffering like, you know, I stubbed my toe or I didn't get a parking spot or, you know, I didn't, God didn't magically grant me that A on the test that I didn't study for, right? But real suffering hits, right? The death of a loved one, uh, a diagnosis with a long road of treatment and recovery, unexpected unemployment, uh, maybe persecution because you took a stand at work for your faith, or you took a stand against a cultural direction that's not honoring to the Lord. When that stuff hits, right, we have a tendency to doubt God's love and to doubt his goodness, Right, but here's the thing. Paul reminds us here that God has poured out his love so deeply that we should never have reason to question it. Right? Yes, God allows us to experience suffering. But in the end, it's for our benefit and for his glory. And yes, we live in a sinful and broken world where things are just awful sometimes. But, but look at these verses. Right? Paul says, while you were sinners, while you were God's enemies, Christ died for you. And his blood is counted as righteousness on your behalf. The human illustration that Paul uses really drives this home, I think. He says, right, you, you might die for someone who is good. 
Right? If you think about who is good, a, a kid, right? You, you might step in and, and take on a bear for, for an innocent child, right? Or if you're married, maybe, maybe you would step in for your spouse and take their place. You might die for that person. Or, or if you're not, maybe a, a good friend, right? Someone who has proved themselves to you year after year. You might die for someone who's good. But, but what about a serial killer, right? Or, or a predator, who's awful and abusive, or someone who tries to sabotage your life at every turn, right? You know that person that just puts you down all the time and tells you you're not good enough and reminds you how you failed over and over? Well, Jesus did that. He didn't die for a righteous person. There, There were no righteous people. Jesus died for his enemies, for his enemies. And as he, as he hung there on that cross, he did not scorn them, right? He didn't, he didn't call them out. He didn't call angels from heaven to smite them. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. God loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. And, and you don't have to feel guilty about any of that, right? Sometimes we go into this mode of, I know God loves me, but I have to feel guilty about that because surely he demands things of me and I could never pay him back for all that he's done. Well, Jesus died for you because he loves you, not because he wants you to feel bad about it. Galatians chapter 5 reminds us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, not to again be burdened by the yoke of slavery. We can become slaves to guilt, right? We can feel guilty because of what God did for us. But, but Jesus tells us it's the opposite. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. We have freedom to stand in grace as friends of God, enjoying him, not feeling like he's some disappointed dad who keeps wishing that we would do better. Right? When we give in to guilt and we believe the lie that we need to earn something with God because of all that he's done and we, we have to owe him, we miss the point. We miss the point. It's really quite the opposite, right? God is not a disappointed father who can't believe that we keep messing up. Jesus actually prayed in John 17. He prayed that the love of the father that he has for the son, that is for Jesus, would be the same love that the father has for you and me. A love that says this, a love that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A love that says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. God is not a disappointed dad looking at you saying, I can't believe you messed up again. Jesus prayed that the father would love you like this, that he would be a dad who says, I'm well pleased with you. My soul delights in you. God loves you deeply, and he showed it for you in the death of Jesus. Fifth. Our salvation is secure. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. It says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Last time, Keller says this. He says, if Jesus stayed on the cross and saved us when we were God's enemies, then how much more will he keep us saved now that we are his friends? If he was able to save us when we were hostile to him, would he fail us now that we are friends? If he didn't give up on you when you were at war with him, 
What could you do to make him give up on you now that you are at peace with him? If, as enemies, God did that much to secure a relationship with you, how much more is he going to continue to walk with you and save you in this life? As his enemy, he died for you. He died for you. Now you're his friend or his beloved son or daughter. Of course he's going to hold you securely in eternity. This is an amazing reality and further evidence of the astronomical love that God has for you. Believer, you are secure in God because of the blood of Jesus. Sixth and finally, we are free to boast in God. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We don't worship God to get something from God, right? We worship God in order to experience him and his grace more fully. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is the thing which our hearts and souls and minds long for. People settle for such lesser things. We talked about this, for hobbies and interests and relationships and status and money and on and on. But we get to boast in the glory of God. We're free to enjoy him with our whole life. We're free from the pressure of doing more and trying harder, right? We're, we're already justified. We're already saved. We've been credited with Christ's righteousness. We're friends with God. We don't have to try and earn anything because it's already been given to us. And so we're free to just enjoy him. What a relief that is. There's no pressure to perform. There's no pressure to do more and try harder and be better in order to earn God's favor. Right? There's no need to defend ourselves when we're confronted with our sin. When we mess up, and we will, we don't have to deflect and minimize and say, well, it's not that bad. Right? We're free to say, yeah, yeah, you're right. I did sin. I did mess up here. And actually, it's much worse than you think. Will you forgive me for what I've done? And praise God for Jesus. Because God forgives me for what I've done too. Right? There's freedom to boast in the gospel and glory in God because he's accomplished what we never could. And we just reap the benefits of his work. Our God is amazing. Look at that list. Right? Justification is an amazing gift in and of itself. And it would have been enough if God stopped there. If God said, if you believe in Jesus, you're credited his righteousness, and in eternity, you are saved. And, and that's it. And now you owe me, right? You have to pay me back, and you have to... God could have done that, and it would have been enough. It would have been an amazing gift for him to justify us in eternity. But, but God is so great that he didn't stop there. And he doesn't stop with just one blessing, right? He keeps giving and giving and giving. He's an amazing God who loves us deeply. I was reading uh, this week, and, and we're going to conclude with this. A pastor uh, shared this story. He writes about um, a pastor friend coming to visit him. Listen to, listen to his words. He says, a few weeks ago, a well-known pastor friend came for a visit. We had a delightful chat getting caught up with each other. As I was backing out of my driveway to take him back to his hotel, I said something like, hey man, thanks for reaching out. This was good for my soul. Text or call me if you need anything, ever. He said, yeah, man, likewise. Then he said, we should be in hell, bro. His sobering words really struck me. 
I thought, that escalated quickly. I was just saying, text me. And he said, we should be in hell, bro. But he was right. And in that simple statement of where we would be without Christ, he was reminding me that he and I do not deserve God's grace. We do not deserve to be saved or to have a ministry. We are infinitely better off than we deserve. I determined to start my days with this reminder, I am not in hell today. That perspective will put things in proper view. Friends, we should be in hell because of our sin. We're separated from God, and that's what we deserve. But because of the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ, that's not what we get. We have blessing after blessing after blessing, right? And these six are just scratching the surface. Normally, uh, in conclusion, I'd have something for you to go and do. I'd tell you to go read this or go talk to someone or, or whatever. But this morning, all I want you to do is look at this list and consider who you are because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that you're not in hell today, and rejoice in the God of your salvation. Let's pray.